Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this morning to Genesis chapter 16. Ishmael, then, and now. In Genesis 15, we read how Abram handled his confusion and disappointments regarding his state of childlessness. God went to great lengths to comfort his heart and to assure him of the promises that God had made. Then over the, the past two weeks in Genesis 16, prior to Thanksgiving, we thought through Sarai's response to these promises, uh, which were not directly uh, to her in word, uh, but rather to her husband. Now, theologically, we might understand that since going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, God proclaimed that when a man leaves his father and mother, he cleaves unto his wife. They too become one flesh. We might understand that a promise to Abram was, in fact, also a promise to Sarai. But this is not uh, really where Sarai and, and Abram came to in their thinking process. I was thinking about this a little bit more as I was writing some sermons in Genesis 17, uh, a sermon in Genesis 17 this week. And yeah, it's very possible I had not brought this up before, but it, it's very possible, uh, among all of the other vulnerabilities in Sarai, um, we recognize that when Abram does, in fact, uh, receive the promise in Genesis 17, um, we, we find that uh, it is uh, uh, still another 13 years after Ishmael is born. And uh, Sarai is in her uh, 90s at that point. Abram's in uh, 99. Uh, Sarai is probably 89, 90 years old. And um, perhaps it was not until the day that uh, she biologically recognized she could no longer physically have children that she suggested that Abram take Hagar. Maybe it was in that day when she says, well, bi the, the biological clock has stopped ticking and now I have no chance. Now Abram has no chance through me. Now it's time to move on. Now it's time to find someone else. Now it's time to have a child another way. And maybe that is the experience. Uh, but, but one way or another, we rooted it in this idea of the fact that if Abram, if God made a promise to Abram, that God would follow through and that there was a, a pragmatic faith of sorts by which they sought to bring about God's promises in a way that made most sense to them temporarily. Sarai brings forth this request to Abram to take Hagar to have a child through her. Abram yields his headship. He relents to this request. He has uh, a child with Hagar. Hagar conceives a child. This immediately causes tremendous conflict within the family. Sarai was despised by her handmaid because Hagar was able to bear a child as Sarai could not. And because this child that she was going to bear was in fact not just a child, but in fact was the child of her mistress's husband, inverting every structure and design within that society. So Sarai then blames Abram for this failure so that we read in verse 5, uh, last time we were in the text, and Sarai said unto Abram, my wrong be upon thee, I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes, the Lord judge between me and thee. So Sarai recognizes that what she asked for was wrong, but acknowledges as well that her husband failed in his headship to lead them in the way that they should go, yielding what he knew he ought to do for what his wife requested of him. And as he is the head of the marriage, he bore the weight of the responsibility for its consequences, as do all of us husbands as it relates to our choices for our marriage. And those consequences were, in fact, quite dramatic. In their day, they were quite dramatic. Sarai was despised of her handmaid. Now she's in a place of angst and frustration within her own home. And in response to Sarai's frustration, we read this in verse 6. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. 
do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. So Abram is very matter of fact about this whole thing. If Sarai doesn't like the way Hagar is treating her, then Sarai can deal with her as however she wants. She can deal with her slave however she sees fit. To this end, Sarai, the Bible says, deals very hardly with her. We don't exactly know what that means. So much so, however, that the Bible says Hagar fled from Sarai. This was unexpected. This, this did not go well. Uh, whatever, whatever it was that Sarai did or said, Hagar was uh, uh, extremely upset about it, and she flees from, Hagar, uh, from Sarai. Hagar does. And this is where we pick up our narrative this week. Beginning in verse 7, the Bible says this. And the angel of the Lord found her, that would be Hagar, by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. So the Bible says that the angel of the Lord finds Hagar, having fled into the wilderness by a fountain of water, which was by the way to Shur. Now the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, that Abram at this time lived between Kadesh and Shur, with the wilderness into which the Hebrews entered after the Exodus being called the desert of Shur in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Verse 14 of this chapter tells us that the well Hagar named was between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar, it would seem, fled south. Possibly even she was fleeing to a point where she could perhaps find a caravan which would take her back to her homeland, which happened to be Egypt. And while Hagar is there, by this fountain of water, we are introduced to a new character in the scriptures. Remember, we're in Genesis. Don't take for granted we're in Genesis, which means we're being introduced to people here, introduced to concepts. We're going to see this with the angel of the Lord this week and next. Then we're going to see this in Genesis 17, where God is going to give himself a new name. And we see that God is introducing himself. And with each one of these steps of introduction, we should be asking those questions. Why is he introduced here? What is this saying about this person or this thing or this concept? Going all the way back to the very beginning, introducing time, space, matter, introducing God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, introducing the nature of the Godhead with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have seen these introductions and we have another introduction here today to this figure, which we've not seen before this point not seen before Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. If we're reading this, if, if you've never read the Bible before and presuming that the Spirit of God is giving you enough understanding to understand it, from a narrative perspective, you would say, what is an angel of the Lord? What is that? What does that mean? Who is this? Now, again, we are only introduced to him here. Next week, however, we're going to devote our sermon to this idea of looking into who the angel of the Lord is and what we can understand about him throughout the entirety of the scriptures, but recognizing how he is introduced here, and that's going to give us a foundation to see what the Bible is going to do with this angel of the Lord throughout the scope, uh, not just of Genesis, but Exodus, and then into um, the Judges, and uh, throughout, really, the Old Testament scriptures. For the sake of today, however, as I said, we'll devote our sermon next week to it. Let's just say that I believe the angel of the Lord in this particular instance is, in fact, God himself. 
and perhaps more specifically in that the nature of the uh, Old Testament teaching on God tells us that no man has seen the Father, that this is likely a pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead, the one who would eventually take on flesh and be called Jesus of Nazareth. And again, I'll substantiate these ideas next week. So the angel of the Lord, the Bible says, finds Hagar and does what our Lord almost always does when he interacts with humans. He asks questions. He doesn't make accusations. He doesn't just jump into teaching or even into commands. All throughout Jesus' life, we're in the book of Mark in our evening, Jesus is asking questions. It's a fantastic way to help draw people out, their motivations, their thinking, their desires, their intentions, their understanding, asking questions. So the angel of the Lord asks Hagar, whence camest thou? Where'd you come from? Whither wilt thou go? Where do you plan to go? And Hagar doesn't actually really give an answer here. She simply says that she fled from her mistress, Sarai. Now, the angel asks no more questions here. The angel does not rebuke her. The angel does not commend her. He simply tells her to return to Sarai and to submit herself under Sarai's hands. Now, the essence of this instruction is not that the angel of the Lord is explicitly telling her to go back and to get abused more. It seems far more likely that the essence of this command is not go back and suffer this abuse, but rather go back and stop what you're doing. Stop seeing yourself and acting superior to your mistress. It was Hagar's condescending manner and superiority that Sarai was frustrated with. So that, recognizing Sarai to be a righteous woman, Hebrews 11 tells us such, to be a good woman and a woman of faith, even recognizing the fact that when she dealt harshly with Hagar, Hagar fled. That was something that must have quite surprised Hagar. Hagar did not know how to handle it, did not know how to process it, and ran from it. Giving us an insight into a, a likelihood that Sarai was, as a general rule, a good mistress, a kind mistress. So if Hagar will go back and will submit herself under the hand of Sarai, instead of elevating herself above Sarai, instead of uh, being condescending to her mistress, if she will instead submit herself as she ought, then things will be well. And so we see this exhortation. And yet the Lord is also very gracious here. Hagar was asked two questions. Where are you coming from? Where do you think you're going? She didn't really have answer to that second question. She really didn't know what she was doing. She was reacting. She was reacting to what had happened. She was running because she was upset. And the Lord, knowing her, seeing her for who she is, is going to address her personally and is going to alleviate the concerns and the fears that are in her heart as a part of exhorting her to go back and to submit herself. That if she will do what she ought to do in faith, that the Lord himself has plans for her as well. And so we read these plans in verses 10 through 14. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man. And every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. 
And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore, the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Le, Lahair Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Accompanying the angel of the Lord's appeal to Hagar to return to Sarai is a promise. He promises her that her seed, that the seed that would come out of her would be named Ishmael and would multiply exceedingly so that the seed would be innumerable in multitude. Now, this is familiar language, isn't it? This is the language that God used to describe the seed of Abram as well, the promise to Abram's seed. But it is also apparent from the text that God is putting a differentiation between the promise that he made to Abram and those he's making to Hagar herself. Notice in verse 11, God said that the reason why he would multiply her seed was because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. He never says that this would be the chosen seed, although Abram comes to believe it when there's a 13-year gap uh, between Ishmael's birth and, and when the Lord would again appear unto him and make new promises or, or enunciate or elaborate more on those promises. But he does not promise here that Ishmael would become that chosen seed. He does not promise here that through Ishmael and through Hagar bearing Ishmael, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He simply promises a great multitude. And he says that he would do this for her specifically because God is uniquely sensitive to the suffering of the afflicted because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And this is yet another aspect of the character of God to which we are uniquely introduced to right here in Genesis 16. We have seen glimmers of the Lord's mercy. We have seen this in, of course, the days of uh, Abel being killed and God bringing Seth to, to be that, that replacement seed. We see it certainly in the days of Noah, where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we have seen a God who is merciful. We have seen a God who is long-suffering. We have seen a God who is gracious. But here we find a very interesting and unique attribute of the Lord, that the Lord is uniquely sensitive to the suffering of the innocent and the suffering of the vulnerable, the suffering of the weak. He is uniquely sensitive to the needs of those who are weak and vulnerable. And as we continue through the Old Testament, we see this established with great clarity. We see it certainly established in the Old Testament law. But perhaps one of the most stirring statements to this effect is found in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. In those verses, we read this, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displeased him, and he turned away his wrath from him. So great is our God's heart for the afflicted that Solomon instructs God's people not to rejoice over the fall of their enemies, over the fall of those who would afflict them. Lest in that moment of, in a sense, reverse affliction, rejoicing over the fall of those who are your enemies, the Bible says God would see that rejoicing. He would see it as affliction the other direction and he would have mercy upon your enemy because he sees the enemy in that moment as afflicted by your rejoicing, as a victim of your rejoicing. This is the heart which our God has for those who are unjustly afflicted, who are victimized in a time of vulnerability without cause. 
So God promises Hagar that her seed would become a multitude, but that promise is very different in character than the promise that was given to Abram. And it is also not accompanied by God's other promises to Abram, again, that of a blessing through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. There's no promise that Ishmael would become that blessing here. Now, these are just glimmers. And if we were reading through Genesis and we did not know what was coming next, we might readily assume at this point that Ishmael is going to be the one. After all, God gave this promise to Abram that he would make a of his seed a great multitude. And now we see this promise to Hagar that God would make of her seed. And it will not be until Genesis 17 that we see more clarity in this regard and find that it is not Ishmael, but it would be a child from Sarai named Isaac who will become the chosen seed. So I'm uh, uh, jumping ahead a little bit there, but but we, we see similarities. But what is notable here is what God does not say about Ishmael. It's what I'm trying to get across here. So God says that this one Ishmael would be a person of, uh, and, and would, would bring about a people very much different in character. God says in verse 12 that this man Ishmael would become a wild man and that his hand would be against every man and that every man's hand would be against him. That though he would dwell in the presence of his brethren, he would dwell among those others of his brethren. He would be present, but he would be, for lack of a better term, untamable. And this is what we're going to consider with the remainder of our time. But first, let's finish the narrative. Verses, um, uh, we're not there yet. There we go. Let's finish the narrative. So the Lord instructs her to name the boy Ishmael. And the name Ishmael means God will hear. This is a direct reference to the fact that God heard the sorrow and the affliction of Hagar in her day. And in this, of course, we can take away our own application that God is, in fact, a God who sees and a God who knows. I was tempted to write one more sermon where we talk about this name that Hagar gives, that he is a God who sees me. But I'm not going to do that. I don't want to get too bogged down. But let's just say a few things here. God is a God who sees you and who knows you. Psalm 139, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsittings and my uprisings. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my paths and my lying downs and are acquainted with all my ways. This is the God who we serve. That among, even among those who are otherwise beneath notice, you serve a God who sees. And you might feel that you are that one who is beneath notice. We have a lot of large families in this church. Children can sometimes maybe feel like they've gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit. Parents don't intend that. We try hard to mitigate against such things. But maybe you feel as though you're not quite seen. Here's the thing, though. You serve a God who sees. You serve a God who knows. Your obedience, your sacrifices, your effort, your love, your determination is not lost on God. You might feel as though you are beneath notice. And maybe in our society, maybe in uh, certain aspects of it, you have fallen beneath notice. But you serve a God who hears, who sees, who knows you. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10, 
Verses 29 to 31. I've referenced it already this morning. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, fear ye not, therefore, excuse me, ye are of more value than many sparrows. That's a special verse. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Because you are of great value to your God. I don't understand why. We sang about that today as well. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We can ask the question, how can it be? And we may never understand that this side of eternity, but we know that it is. He is the God who hears. He is the God who sees. If God cares so much for the sparrows, if, as we read back in Matthew chapter 6, God clothes the grass of the field and the flowers which today are and tomorrow are cast into the fire, how much more valuable are you to him? Hagar was not to become the mother of that chosen nation, nor the chosen seed, though she would become the mother of many other nations. But the Lord still saw her, still sought for her. Interesting that the first time we actually see the angel of the Lord mentioned, it's possible that as Abram's talking in, in, in chapter 15 or whatnot, uh, that, that the angel of the Lord is there, that we could regard that as the angel of the Lord. But the first time we see it mentioned, he is not standing before Enoch. He is not standing before Noah. He is not standing before Abram or even Sarai. He's standing before a, an Egyptian handmaid telling her that he's seen her and he understands what she's going through and exhorting her to do what's right and to align herself with faith. And Hagar is deeply blessed by this promise. She finds that she is seen. She sees that she is heard. Her affliction is noted. The Lord has shown her compassion. To that end, the fountain of water, which she was next to, was named by her on that day, Bear Lahairoi, meaning well of the living one who sees me. And may God help each of us in our own lives to understand this well that God does see you. In your hard days, God sees you. In your times of sorrow, confusion, and affliction, God sees you. In the times of false accusations, God sees you. And not only does he see you, but there is no reason ever to doubt the value that you have in his eyes. Now, of course, if I were preaching a sermon on this, I'd also say, remember God sees you. <laughs> because he sees you in your dark day too. He sees you in your time of rebellion too. You can't hide from him either. But certainly that's not the character of what Hagar is experiencing on this day. On this day, she needed to be seen. And God assured her she was. Now let's talk about Ishmael. On this day, when Ishmael is still in his mother's womb, God gave a prophetic promise regarding his influence and his character. 
In influence, God promised that from him would come an exceedingly vast number of people, innumerable in multitude. In character, God promised that he would be a wild man. Literally in the text, it's a wild donkey of a man. That's the idea there of the, of the text, that kind of stubborn, untamable nature. And that his hand would be against every man and that every man's hand would be against him. The idea here being that he would be stubborn, untamable, as I've used before, and contrary to men in the presence of his brethren. He wouldn't necessarily completely separate himself from his brethren, but he would be contrary unto them. And the reason why this matters is because this is still the descendants of the characters of uh, the, the character of the descendants of Ishmael today. We have said since that time, in uh, as we considered in Genesis chapter 16, that the consequences of Abram having this child with Ishmael were difficult in that day, but that they did not just touch on that day; they have continued to touch even unto today. Now, there's actually not that much that is said about the descendants of Ishmael throughout the rest of Scripture. You say, Pastor, how, how do you know? What, what, how are you connecting the descendants of Ishmael? And let, I'd like to talk about that. The Bible tells us that like his half-nephew Jacob, Ishmael would have 12 sons. Those 12 sons are listed in Genesis chapter 25, verses 13 through 15. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaioth, and Kedar, and Ab uh, Adbiel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadar, and Temma, Jeter, Nephish, and Kedema. Now there's very little in scripture about these men or even any tracing of their lineage through the nations as we would normally expect or see with other men. We know that Esau, Jacob's brother, married Nebaioth's sisters, Mahalath and Bathshemath, in an attempt to appease his parents after he married Canaanitish women and his parents did not like them. The descendants of Nebaioth and Kedar are mentioned in the great messianic promise of Isaiah chapter 60 as families whose flocks would be gathered unto Messiah. So we recognize that their descendants will continue until the time of Messiah's second coming where the descendants of these nations will in fact be drawn to Messiah as many of many nations would. Finally, we learn from Genesis chapter 25 that when Hagar and Ishmael are sent away from Isaac... They settled in an area south and west of Canaan initially near the border of Egypt. Extending our study beyond just the scriptures and into other histories, our attempts to identify the descendants of Ishmael become perhaps a bit clearer. We find in the accounts of the post-Assyrian cultures, remember that there was the time of the Assyrians and then that gave way effectively to the Babylonians in dominance. But we find in that time there was a group around Israel called the Nebetaeans. Josephus, in his history, connects this society directly with Ishmael's firstborn son, Nebaioth. This was a group associated with what would eventually be called by both the Greeks and the Romans, the Arabs, the Arab nations. And this is in direct contrast, that label is direct contrast to nations that came out of the Assyrians or nations that came out of the Syrians. So you have the Syrians and the Assyrians. Neither one of those, those were their own thing. But the Greeks and the Romans recognized this other group of people. Josephus connects them to Nebaioth, to Ishmael's line, and they called them the Arab nations. Now there's much more history to go through here than could possibly be expressed 
today. I'm already going to be pushing it, I think, in time today. It's perhaps sufficient to remark that the Nabetean people were, at times, very numerous and very strong. At the time of Christ, they were recognized by the Roman Empire as a standalone nation. Uh, you perhaps recall, if you've listened to my intertestamental period teaching, uh, that the Nabetians come in quite regularly within the scope of that time between Malachi and Matthew, and then certainly into the time following Jesus' birth and during his, his life. They even assisted Rome in the destruction of, Israel, of Jerusalem in 70 AD under their king, whose name was Malchus the second. The nation was broken up by Rome in 106 AD uh, by Emperor Trajan, at which point the people cut off all ties with the Western world. They had generally been uh, very uh, willing to interact with, with Rome and Greece before them until this point. But when Rome uh, dealt with them harshly, they were dealing with uh, the whole region harshly at that time. It would not be long before they would exile every Jew out of the land um, by this point. They had already destroyed Jerusalem and they'd already razed it to the ground. The temple had already been absolutely obliterated and burned with one stone not standing upon another. And at this point, the Nabetean people cut off ties and they assimilated themselves wholly into their own Eastern culture. Uh, not necessarily the Eastern culture that we see, however, in the Byzantine Empire, but rather a, a separate Eastern culture. As we look through the writings of those early historians of Rome, Diodorus, around 30 BC, describes these people as a wild nomadic folk with no agriculture, but with flocks and herds and engaged in considerable trading. If we continue to walk through the sons of Ishmael, we find traditional connections to, with the same character as the Arab nations. Kedar is spoken of in Assyrian writings as being an enemy of the Assyrian people. Their clans being somewhat assimilated into the Nabataeans in the 300s BC, so that would be uh, still well before Jesus' day. Adbael is identified with a people in the lands of Sinai west of Egypt. Duma is often connected to a people called the Adirian Adumatu people. Their king at the time of the Assyrian king Sennacherib was called the king of the Arabs. Of the other sons, that are, uh, there are some possible connections in history, relatively little clarity on some of the others. But what history does reflect is that these tribes, which were generally nomadic, scattered, were all considered to be related to one another and were lauded into this, this, this group called the Arab nations. And, the, and, and in history, we see that they carried similar cultural distinctions. They were a people of trade, of flocks. They were nomadic. And they had very turbulent cultures. They were lawless. A culture which understands and responds to one thing and one thing alone, and that's power. Whereas one put it, plunder is legitimate gain and daring robbery is praised as valor. It's a, it's a popular narrative among Muslims that the Arab nations are direct descendants of Ishmael. They are thus considered to be co-descendants of Abraham and claim Ishmael to be the favored son. And that's one of the distinctives of Islam is that they claim Ishmael as their father and they claim that Ishmael was the favored son, not Isaac. Muhammad, the false prophet of Islam, was a major proponent of this claim. He claimed himself to be a direct descendant of Ishmael within the Quran, 
Also claiming in the Quran that Abraham and Hagar bore the prophetic child whose name was Ishmael by Allah through one of his angels. In the 14th Surah, verse 37 of the Quran, it claims that God established Ishmael when he, was, when he fled, that he established Ishmael uh, at the sacred house in Mecca, which is why Mecca is, of course, their most sacred and holy place. To this end, there is little reason to doubt as you trace the history. Historically, little reason to doubt the connection between Ishmael and the Arab nations as they exist today. Nor to doubt that Islam is a direct religious derivation of the sons of Ishmael, which is why Islam is listed among Judaism and Christianity as an Abrahamic religion. It's called an Abrahamic religion specifically because it is linked directly to Abraham's son, Ishmael, in his day. And then, of course, Judaism and Christianity are both linked to Abraham through his son, Isaac. And I give you all of this in order that we might connect some dots to where we find ourselves today. People have asked me, Pastor, what do you think about what's happening in the Middle East right now? And uh, naturally, the best thing that you can ever do when one of these things happens is just wait. <laughs> wait and see, right? Because uh, things are going to fall out and play out, and it's, it's, it's happened exactly how it always happens. Um, and that is effectively to be expected. On October 7th of this year, 2023, the inhabitants of Gaza, which is a very small portion of land on the Mediterranean coast, on the southwest of Israel's borders, struck the nation of Israel in what has accurately been described as the worst terror attack on the West since 9-11, and certainly the worst attack uh, by casualties on the Jewish people since the Holocaust. This attack continues the history of a people who have always fought and conquered in this method, using terror and cultural overthrow as their primary means of conquering for centuries. We can trace their mindset and their tactics throughout the generations. If you know history, you know this well. From the battles between the Arabs and the Catholics and the Crusades of the 11 and 1200s, to the overthrow of the Byzantine Empire by the Ottomans in the 1400s, to the breakup of the Arab nations after World War I and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, it's always been this way. The Arab peoples have always lived up to their prophetic description that God gave to them in Genesis 16 a people in an incessant state of feud with their neighbors, a people who are stubborn, contrary, fiercely independent, whose hand is against every man and whose, 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 every man is against them. Put by one commentator, they are rude, plundering, and turbulent, and it has always been so. And prophetically, there's no reason to think it will ever not be this way. Now, as I say these things, we recognize that we are looking at the characteristic of a people. We are not looking at the characteristic of, we are not imputing that characteristic to every individual among those people. God forbid, I remember when I went to China. It was, it's been 15 years, 16 years ago now. And we went to the island just south of mainland China called Hainan. I was there with a missionary, and he, he was doing great work. He's still over there doing great work. And we were there to teach English as a means by which to get our foot in the door so that he could establish further works uh, within the underground church network that was there. And um, he, he did great work. But as we went there, um, we were the first group that he ever brought to do one of these workshops. 
and it was a bunch of people that we, we were from Pensacola Christian College, and we were going there, and we were going to, to spend six weeks teaching there. And for many people in Hainan, we were the first Americans they'd ever seen. And so their interaction with us brought about all of the expectations of the stereotypes of what an American is, because the only thing that they had ever learned of Americans is what Hollywood had taught them. And we were a little bit different than what Hollywood portrayed an American to be. God forbid that they would impute everything that they learned about the character of our people upon me as an individual, because I'm not just stereotype American broadly, I am my own man. So remember this when we think through the idea of recognizing the character of a people versus an individual that I might interact with. Each man is a living soul. Each man is made in the image of God. And each man has a will by which he can exercise it for or against the truth. We recognize the character of a people. We can trace that character through history, not just of the Arab nations, but of the Jewish nation as well. We can recognize the character of the, of, of the descendants of Japheth just like we can the Shemites. And yet, though we see this broad character, that does not mean we impute that character to any individual interaction. And let us be careful that we do not do so. But I am speaking on this broad level today. And we, we have seen the fruit of this broad characteristic in the manner of geopolitics, particularly for the last 70 or 80 years. Really going all the way back to World War I. And I'm going to give you that history today so that you can orient yourself maybe a little bit better. Perhaps many of you know this already, but I'm not going to take for granted that you do. So every generation of Western leaders has sought to parlay with Arab nations, each one assuming something which, unfortunately, uh, not only can you not assume, but you ought to assume the opposite. Each one has assumed, each Western leader has assumed that if only we will present to, to, to the, the Arab nations, and by the way, the same thing has happened with the Eastern nations, uh, China and such, if we will only present to them our way of thinking, that they will clearly see that our way of thinking is better than theirs, and they will just think like us and, and act like us. It's supremely arrogant. Um, it is absolutely unfounded. I'm mean, going all the way back to the British and, and, and the opium wars uh, in China. You can see such things. We've done the same thing in the Middle East. You cannot import democratic principles to a people that are not founded upon the truths of God's word. It will never work. It cannot work. That's why we could spend 20 years in Afghanistan and leave, and they revert to the mean like that. Of course they did. It will never work to send... To send Republican principles to a people who do not have a biblical foundation. But, of course, all of our leaders have tried again and again and again. We've fought incessant wars in the Middle East since the early 90s, attempting to do this very thing with each generation of the presidential leadership being convinced that his war with the Arab nations will be the one that finally convinces the Eastern mind to assimilate into the Western mind. But prophetically, it will not be so. And from this, I want to carry forward two thoughts for you to take away this morning, and I still have quite a bit to say, so stay with me. The first is thoughts on the nature of what's happening right now in the Middle East as a continuation of the volatility which the region has always had, especially since Israel became a state in 1948. The second will be then to sum up the consequences of this pragmatic faith and yielded headship, which Abram and Sarai exercised, by which Hagar was con uh, conceived and bore Ishmael, and those consequences, prophetic consequences upon all of us today. So first, let's get historical and prophetic. 
Remember, the foundation of interpretive assumptions that we make as we step into anything as we look into history and prophecy. As we establish our viewpoint on prophetic history, we believe that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were and still are God's chosen people in consistency with the prophets of the Old Testament and Romans chapter 9 through 11. I justified that a little while ago. Uh, you can certainly go back and listen to those messages, um, particularly those Gen that Genesis 15 mini-series I did, um, if you want to understand a little bit more of why we believe this. We believe that God still has a plan for national Israel, that that plan is distinct from his plan for the church, though both plans naturally center around the finished work of Jesus Christ. We reject the notion of replacement theology. Now re-coined, um, I've, I've, I've just fairly recently learned that it has no longer been coined as replacement theology. I guess it doesn't uh, poll well or something. So they've, they've changed it to fulfillment theology whereby the church has subsumed the, God's promises for Israel. We do not believe that the church has subsumed God's promises for Israel. We do not believe either in dominion theology, which teaches that the church will continue to win people to Christ and will come to dominate the world uh, in order that we might then win the whole world to Christ. And we are not dominion theologians. And so that's the foundation with which I approach this prophetic idea. If you're, not in any, uh, uh, if you're not in agreement with that, then you're going to find what I say to be probably somewhat uh, less, uh, not accurate. You're, you're going to disagree, and that's fine. Um, we all have disagreements, and that's just the way it goes. But I want to let you know my foundation so that you can understand where we're coming from. And if you share this foundation, then these things are going to generally make sense to you, I think. With this foundation, then we think about the current political na nation of Israel and how it fits into God's prophetic plan. And I want to give you a history surrounding the miraculous reemergence of the nation of Israel in the 20th century after some 1,900 years of non-existence, because it is indeed miraculous. The connection between the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan is and has been undeniable. Joshua entered the land somewhere around the 1500s BC. The kingly line of David began mid-1000s BC. First temple is built about 1011 BC under Solomon. Israel was sent into captivity between 605, uh, beginning in 605 B.C. Uh, the final uh, deportation was in 586 B.C. And uh, at some point within that, we see the 70 years of captivity. Under King Cyrus of Persia, the Jews were allowed to go back into their land. And the second temple was built about 515 B.C., with the command of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city, going, uh, we, we would believe to be about 450 B.C. From here, the biblical history is paused. We end in Malachi. The temple is rebuilt, but meager. The uh, city walls are rebuilt um, to protect the city. Of course, Ezra and Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and uh, we leave kind of in that time with many promises of the Lord, but promises which are generally left as just that, promises. So we, we leave 
at this point biblical history because we have about 450 years between Malachi and Matthew. Again, I've taught on that. Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel gives us prophetic teaching on those years and what those years look like. Uh, it's a fascinating time in history and I encourage you either to go back and listen to my teaching or maybe maybe uh, next year or at some point I'll, I'll bubble that teaching back up because it's so much fun to teach. But we find the next true major event is Alexander the Great. When he conquered the land in 332 BC, Israel was there. Then we go a couple hundred years more and we come to a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He sought to Hellenize the Jews and instead he created a massive nationalist movement around 168 BC. It was at this time that Hanukkah becomes a, a holiday as the commemoration of the cleansing of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had gone in and had desecrated the temple, had desecrated the altar. And they cleansed the altar in that time, and that's where the, the uh, idea of the, the Feast of Lights, or the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, is found. Of course, the land was dominated then by the great temple of Herod during the time of Caesar Augustus and of Jesus in the first century A.D., by that point, we step into Matthew and we find all of these unique people there. We find this, this group of people called the Samaritans. We find these people called the Pharisees. We find these people called the Sadducees. None of them existed in the Old Testament. We didn't hear anything about them in the Old Testament. And yet here they are. We find that Israel, who had always struggled with idolatry, who had always chased after every possible idol, they are now virulently connected to the law of Moses, uh, down to the very jot and tittle. Uh, they are zealous. They are passionate. And uh, Jesus enters into that world. And wow, what a different world than the one we left in Malachi. A lot has happened. But the Jews have been there the whole time. And we trace this through Jesus. We chase this past Jesus to 70 A.D., in 66 AD, the Jews revolt against Rome. In 70 AD, Rome destroys the temple and Jerusalem. We already said in 106, that is when the Nabetians were kicked out of the area. In 132, there was the Bar Kokhba uprising that led in 136 to the Jews being expelled from the land. This is where you get all of the, the, the freedom fighter story of Masada. Uh, comes from that time of the Bar, uh, of the Bar Kokhba uprising and... Um, you can read about that. That's a pretty fascinating time in history. At this point, God has fulfilled the prophetic promise that we see all throughout the Old Testament through Moses, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, and through Ezekiel among the minor prophets that God would scatter the Jews throughout the known world. It was also at this time that the Romans, in, in a way of sticking it in the eye of the Jews, who were always a people that uh, were unwilling to be governed by them, uh, renamed the region Palestine. They renamed the region Palestine as a way to um, insult the Jews because it was named after their historical enemies, the Philistines. And so Palestine does not speak to a particular people group, except in modern times. Palestine spoke to the name of a region, as it was before that, the region of Canaan. Then it became Israel, then it became the region of Palestine. And the Bible says, of course, the Jews would not be regathered until its last days. It's in 636 AD that Islam is founded. 
Various other groups lived in the land from this point forward, but none ever established an independent state there. The land was effectively a nomadic land throughout these many years. There were still the places where people lived. Jerusalem was a city. It was inhabited, but there were people coming and there were people going, and there was no nation established there. It was more like individual uh, 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 secluded cities that would become hubs of commerce or hubs of whatever it might be, but no particular nation. As I said, Islam was founded in 636 by the false teacher Muhammad, which through religion began to unite the scattered and independent Arab tribes into a singular force. The Dome of the Rock was built atop the Jewish Temple Mount in 691 AD. The land would have no true nation associated with it from the end of Israel to its reestablishment. It would be under Arab rule until 1099, from 1099 to 1291, it was under effectively the Catholic Crusader rule. They went and they sought to retake the Holy Lands, if you recall. From 1291 to 1516, it was under Mamluk rule. Then the Ottomans ruled it from 1517 to 1917 as a part of the Ottoman Empire. And it was in 1917, after World War I, that then everything changed. In 1917, after the mess that was World War I, the British promised the Jews an entire region known as British Mandate Palestine. British Mandate Palestine on this map here would have been the entire, the entire area there that is in red. You notice here that we have the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and uh, the, the River Jordan. So this is that river going to the Mediterranean Sea. This is uh, what's called Transjordan. And then you have that area that is known as Palestine. Uh, that is the, the two particular areas here of British Mandate Palestine. Uh, both Palestine, which is from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, which is the meaning of that phrase, from the river to the sea, that you're hearing so much. When you hear from the river to the sea, it's speaking of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So when they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, just know that all of Israel exists right here. <laughs> which means if... They want to cleanse it for, from Jews from the river to the sea. That means they want to cleanse all the Jews. It's a genocidal phrase. No ifs, ands, or buts about that. And then, of course, you have Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan River. This is known as the Balfour Declaration there in 1917. If you've heard of the Balfour Declaration. This initiated what were called pogroms in Arab in the Arab world in the 1920s. The word pogrom is actually derived from a Russian word meaning to destroy violently. It was because of the nature of uh, the Russians' interactions with the Jews that that word was then assimilated into Arab, uh, Arab uh, intentions against the Jews. Pogroms are violent riots aimed at destroying an entire ethnic or religious group. In 1922, the British acquiesced to pressure and they separated the entire area of Transjordan to become a separate Arab state. So they said, well, uh, they, they initially wanted to give it all to, to the Jews and then they said, well, no, we're going to separate that green area there, Transjordan. We're going to give that and we're going to make that an Arab state, which would be called Jordan. Now, things would stay messy throughout the 20s and the 30s until 1937. That's a much smaller map there. I'm sorry, I probably should have worked on that. In 1937, there was a commission called the Peel Commission, recommending that the Jews be given a small portion of land in the northwest of Palestine. There's a, a red line here. 
That was what the Peel Commission recommended that the Jews be given as Israel. The British would then retain control over Jaffa, right here on the coast, and then all of this lower, this shaded area there to Jerusalem would maintain, would remain under British control, and then all the rest of this, uh, of course, this was already Transjordan, and then all the rest of, of, of this area of Palestine would go as a part of the Arab states. In 1939, just as World War II was getting underway, the British explicitly restricted the immigration of Jews to that region. They would not let Jews flee into that region from Europe, and that left many Jews stuck in Europe, and then many of them thus being killed in the Holocaust. In World War II, the Arab nations, along with Italy and Vatican City, uh, sided with Hitler in his aggressive attempt to exterminate Jewish populations. The Roman Catholic Church has historically always been deeply anti-Semitic, blaming, blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus. And uh, it's no difference in the days of World War II. The Arab nations would come alongside and would be uh, on, on Hitler's side throughout that aggression. Following World War II, sympathy with the Jews was at its peak. So while the British had this plan in place from the Peel Commission that actually changed quite a bit because they recognized at that time, having seen that the Jews, unable to leave Europe and find a place where they could call home where they were not hated, uh, had ended up being subjected to the, the awful atrocities of the Holocaust, and with that sympathy toward their need for an independent state, an independent state was declared in the region of Palestine in 1948. The nation was called Israel, and this officially was the end of the British Mandate of Palestine on May 14th of 1948. The day after this declaration, May 15th of 1948, Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, and, and Iraq invaded Israel. At the end of this war, amazingly enough, Israel won handily, and they controlled the vast majority of the area with the Arabs in control of the Gaza Strip, which is this very small little portion here in green, and then this green portion here, which is called the West Bank. Israel controlled the remainder of Palestine. And so that by July of 1948, all of this yellow area here was Israel territory, and this green area and Gaza were Arab territories. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, would form. The express purpose of that organization was to destroy Israel. In 1967, the Arab League announced their three no's. No peace, no recognition, no negotiation. And this would soon follow by what's called the Six-Day War of 1967. The Six-Day War was actually a preemptive strike by Israel. They claimed that they were about to be struck, there's general evidence that that is the case, but they, either way, they preemptively struck against the Arab states of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. By the end of those six days, Israel had taken all of the Sinai Peninsula. They had also taken the Golan Heights, all of the West Bank, and all of Gaza. And they had taken the entirety of Jerusalem as well. Those lines would remain from 1967 to 1973 when the Arabs launched a war on Yom Kippur. 
because power and victory are the only Arab objectives in war. They often launch their attacks on holidays. They did that on October 7th. They did that in the Yom Kippur War. They launch on the holidays specifically so that they can have the greatest advantage, which from a purely pack, uh, tactical perspective makes sense, but we are reminded that the idea of rules of engagement do not apply. They don't care. They don't think. They, they are not Western thinkers. Israel would gain more territory in this war, in fact. In 1979, Israel would give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt in order to help secure peace in the region. In 1993, Israel and the PLO agreed to the Oslo Accords, which were intended to be the beginning of a peace process intent on giving the people of Palestine a nation that would be internationally recognized with the the, the leaders at the time, Bill Clinton, being convinced that if only the nation of Palestine could become a nation and be internationally recognized and be assimilated into the world community, that that would solve all of our problems. Throughout these accords from 1993 going all the way to 2000, Israel would continually concede more territory to the Palestinian Authority in order that they may secure peace and allow them to set up this Palestinian state. In 2000, the year 2000, Palestine was offered 91% of the West Bank to begin their own nation. Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat refused. And at this time, the Palestinians began the Second Intifada, which you can look up on your own if you're interested. In 2005, Israel completely withdrew from the Gaza Strip, a small tract of land to the west of Israel that had been the focal point right there of many of the problems and has been the focal point of the problems for the last few months. It is that little strip that we're talking about when Israel is talking about Hamas in Gaza. Notice that they are bordered right with Egypt and then they're bordered with Israel. In 2006, the people of Gaza, of Gaza had their first election to elect their first government. And the group that they elected, the, the, the majority that gained power in 2006 in Gaza, was a group called Hamas. They were a political organization with the intent purpose of destroying all Jews, and they were elected to be the leaders of Gaza. Since that date in 2006, there has not been another UN understood or recognized election. Hamas has simply maintained power since that date. They have ruled over Gaza since 2006, becoming a base for terrorist activity, obviously, unto this day. Now, say, Pastor, thank you for the history lesson. What, what does any of that have to do with anything biblical? Well, the questions are asked. What do we do biblically with the things that are happening in the world today? People have asked why, well, what, what my thoughts are on the events at hand, and these are my thoughts based upon our interpretive framework and the history as we see it. First, I find that no nation that I can find in history has ever returned after 2,000 years of being absent. The fact that Israel is back in the land is a miracle of the highest order. Recognizing geopolitics and what it is and how it works the idea that, that the nation of Israel disappeared in 70 AD and reappeared in 1948 is a miracle that I would put on par with a blind man seeing and a lame man walking. It is a miracle that the Jews are in that land. 
that a scattered people of some 16 million worldwide could reform a nation after 2,000 years of it not existing and then rebuild a language that was completely gone? And this answers many questions for me. This tells me that the nation of Israel and the Jews finding their way back to it are, in fact, a people of prophetic promise. I see nothing in genetics or in history or in the Bible that lends itself to the idea that the Jews over there are fake Jews. And I say this because the right wing of politics today has a fairly large uh, contingency of people that deeply struggle with the nature of Jewish interactions in the world. And granted, we recognize, and we'll talk a lot more about this, that the idea that someone is a Jew and thus is a person who is connected to God's historic people does not mean that that person is a person that is a good man, a good person. As a matter of fact, if you read through most of the Old Testament, you'll find that a good portion of the Jews were not good people. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't do what God wanted. But they were still God's people. And so we have to separate some things in our minds. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So the idea of the um, Khazarian Jews, as they're called on the interwebs, the synagogue of Satan, often misused from Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, Jews running the world, space, lasers, all of that. Um, do we see Jews disproportionately represented in places of power in our world? We absolutely do. Can we talk about some of the reasons why that might be? We absolutely can. But does that mean that there's some sort of grand conspiracy among a group of people who call themselves Jews but who are not Jews and that that conspiracy is going to lead to some sort of takeover of the world? Um, and so we need to place all of our vitriol, anger, and rejection upon these people that call themselves the Jews, uh, that, that seems unfounded to me. To this end, I believe that since 1917, we have witnessed prophecy unfold before our eyes. And with every tragic event that falls upon the Jewish people, we see more and more of them being drawn to their homeland. I don't know if you've noticed that in the writings of various Jews, the vast majority of Jews in the world that would claim Jewish heritage are what we would consider to be non-Orthodox or non-practicing Jews. They are generally leftist. They are generally uh, um, very, uh, very much so not disinterested in, in the traditions of their fathers as a general rule of, of the word of God. And yet, with each one of these incidences that happen, more and more of them are just inexplicably drawn to go back to their homeland. To me, that is interesting and consistent with the Lord drawing his people back. Again, when we say his people, we don't say it in the same way we talk about the church. His people, the church, are those who have chosen him. His people, Israel, are those who have been chosen. And there's a difference. Second, the church has very little clarity on what the end times are going to look like. And of course, there's much disagreement among scholars and Christians alike about the end times. Premillennial, postmillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Get into all of those different things. Preterism, the like. To that end, I don't know what to look for per se. We say, what are we looking for? We're looking for that next landmark of prophecy. What do we look for next? 
We see fingerprints, we see breadcrumbs, but the fact of the matter is this. Like with all prophecy, we have our ideas, but that prophecy is meant for the generation in which it's fulfilled. The generation that sees it fulfilled will know it. We do not receive prophecy so that we can know the future. Revelation is not called the book of the revelation of things to come. Revelation is called the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is not there to teach us of the future, though it has much future in it. It is there to teach us of the character of our Savior. It is not there so that we have some sort of inside track into what's coming next. It is there so that we know whatever's coming next, we want to be on God's side today because when we get there, we better be on his side. Because if you're not, it's going to be a bad day. And like with the restoration of Israel as a nation, we don't know how any of this is going to go. The nation of Israel was recommenced after 2,000 years out of whole cloth. Things could happen tomorrow that just change everything. But to be quite honest, to this point, in my opinion, since October 7th, nothing has happened that has changed anything. We're seeing quite the status quo. Now, what do we know? We know from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, that God promised the city of Jerusalem would be a constant source of conflict during the last days. Last days, according to Paul, began when Jesus ascended into heaven and began with the day of Pentecost, really. So we've been in the last days now for something akin to 2,000 years. Zechariah 12, verse 3 says, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Of course, the final gathering together against Jerusalem is what we see in the day that we call Armageddon. But in those days, the Bible says Jerusalem will be a burdensome stone. It's been that way for a very long time. From the days of Rome, Jerusalem has always been a city of contention. And all who have sought to hold it have done so with great trouble and effort and usually with a lot of lives. And we believe it will remain that way until the end. So we believe generally that there's coming a time when Israel will strike a seven-year peace agreement with the nations that are around it. We believe this from Daniel chapter 9. We believe this from uh, various other prophecies in Daniel brokered by a Western leader who will, be, will become the man that we often call Antichrist. The word Antichrist is only used in 1 John. It is never used directly uh, uh, to speak of uh, a man. It's more like the spirit of Antichrist, a man who is Antichrist. Uh, Antichrist shall come. We connect him then to that man that, that Thessalonians calls the man of sin and the son of perdition, where Daniel calls the little horn or the prince that shall come. So we believe that this prince that shall come will broker a peace agreement for seven years. This will allow sacrifices to be reinitiated at a temple, which is either already built in Jerusalem or which will at that time be rebuilt. And Israel, we believe, from Ezekiel, will then tear down their walls and their fences because there will be complete peace in that land. We then believe that around the midpoint of that seven years, a confederacy of nations led by one called Gog of Magog, generally identified with Russia, will seek to destroy Israel, but will fail and will himself be destroyed. Around the same time, that man who is the prince that shall come, who we often call Antichrist, will reveal himself and the Western world will then be dedicated to the eradication of the Jews once again. 
And at the end of those seven years, the Bible says God will stir the hearts of the kings of the north and the east to fight against the west, specifically to come against Jerusalem. So that we read in Zechariah 14, verses 2 and 3, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. It will go on to say in Zechariah 14, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. Believing that this is the day where Jesus' feet will touch the Mount of Olives and the Jews will finally recognize their Savior. So the Bible says that the final meeting here will be in the Valley of Megiddo where Jesus will return, Israel will believe, destroy his enemies and set up a thousand year kingdom. And to that end, when you say, well, pastor, what do you see today? I don't see anything directly prophetic except for a moving the ball forward drawing more of God's people to, to the nation. More, Israel, more people of, of Israel being drawn to move back to that homeland. Everything else so far, however, simply bears the marks that we've seen, the continued conflict. If something prophetic happens, we'll know. If the Temple Mount is claimed for Israel and they rebuild the temple, that'll be pretty big. If we begin talking about a seven-year peace treaty between Arab nations... That'll be pretty big. The Ezekiel Confederacy of nations led by Gog and Magog seems to be pretty well established and in place at this point. Most theologians of our stripes believe that that confederacy is something like Russia, Turkey, Syria, Sudan, Iran, Egypt, Libya. And that sounds about right for the various confederacies that we already see in that region today. We expect that their invasion might happen after the seven-year peace agreement, which we learned about in Daniel. But as I see prophecy fulfilled, as I witness Israel's rebirth, the hatred of the family of Ishmael toward them, the lack of support in the world from the satanic institutions that we find, the EU, the UN, leftism in general, the Catholic Church, Gnostic Christians, I find once again that the most consistent position is to see that things happening in Israel are in fact the working of God though we are waiting to see another prophetic marker come. And this leads me to my last observation, and it's one that I already talked about a little bit. Last observation is this. There's a big difference between supporting God's prophetic working, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and supporting the current incarnation of the state of Israel. The state of Israel is not a godly state as it exists today. It is a lowercase l liberal and pluralistic society, which is not even close to majority orthodox. And even the orthodox are still unbelieving in, uh, unbelievers and pagans. To support God's plan for Israel does not demand that you support the political or national institution of Israel as it exists today. It doesn't. The leaders of Israel, like those of the USA, are not Christian men. They are not necessarily men of principle or of virtue. We might, we might believe that a singular leader is a man of principle or of virtue in our country or theirs, but there's nothing that says that because that man leads this nation, uh, he leads, uh, we know that our leader is not a man of virtue or of principle or of, or of belief or anything of the sort. And, and, and uh, the same can be said for, 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 for a, a leader of Israel. There's no obligation to support Israel's politics just because we support God's prophetic plan. 
Though I have called the current existence of Israel a miracle on par with or above a, uh, above a blind man seeing or a lame man walking, while it would seem that their reemergence into history seems to portend the prophetic events of the end times as we understand them, none of that is necessarily assured, is it? God has given that land to the Jews as an everlasting inheritance. We have seen that in Genesis. That does not mean that God has given it to this group intrinsically. It is not necessarily an argument for the current state of Israel to say that God has given the Jews that land. God has allowed the Jews to lose that land before. God could allow them to lose that land again. It's entirely possible. If he decides to allow them to lose that land again, that's God's business. Christians are under no obligation to support a group of people just because those people have a part in God's prophetic future. As a matter of fact, the prophets struggled with this in their day, right? Habakkuk gives a prophecy saying that Babylon was going to come and destroy Judah. And Habakkuk had a hard time just giving that prophecy because he was so frustrated that he saw Babylon being used by God. Well, Babylon was not a bastion of godliness. God can use wicked people. God has used wicked people throughout history. But God will accomplish his purposes. And that is what we find our loyalty to. God accomplishing his purposes. God will do as he will. Our loyalty is to his plan, to his program, to his promises, not to a political, an ethnic, or a religious group of people. However, that being said, I walked you through the history today. The history of history is a history of conquering and of diplomacy. If the current state of Israel has no right to exist, based upon the history that we've talked about today and the way that they've deported themselves in this conflict and in every conflict, then no nation on earth has a right to exist. Which I know is what one contingency wants. The history of the world is the history of diplomacy and of conquest. Israel has obtained that land in, the, in this age the same way every nation throughout history has obtained their land. They don't deserve it any more than any other, but they don't deserve it any less either. They have that land. They have it by the right of diplomacy and of conquest. And until someone arrives that can take it from them, it's theirs. They have the right to defend it. They have the right to defend their people in it, just as we do. And maybe there comes a day where we are conquered and we do not have that right anymore. And on that day, we talk about things differently. But until that day, this is ours. That's theirs. We have the right to defend ours. They have the right to defend theirs. In relation to Christian support, we can support them for what God has promised. We can support them simply through what history bears out. Just like our own nation, to support Israel's politics might at times be the least Christian thing to do, at other times the most Christian thing to do. When Israel does bad things, their historical position with God does not disqualify them from criticism. Any more than if your pastor does a bad thing, my position in this church doesn't disqualify me from criticism. But today, things are very different than that, right? It's very different. Criticizing Israel is very different than what the anti-Israel coalition is saying today. They have turned reality upon its head. It has been well said, and often said, that if the Palestinians were to lay down their weapons tomorrow, they would immediately have a state. If the Jews were to lay down their weapons tomorrow, 
the Jews would cease to exist. And there's only one side that's morally right in that conflict. The objective of the Arabs in the Middle East is not to secure for Palestine a home. As a matter of fact, Egypt, Jordan, all the states around Gaza refuse to take any Palestinian refugees. Have you noticed that? They won't take one. They say not a single refugee may come into our, our, our land. They're not interested in that. Their desire is to wipe every Jew off the face of the earth. And this too, this is something else that is legitimately prophetically significant. In the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we see an attempt at this as well. The dragon is cast out of heaven and he knows his time is short. So the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13, that the dragon goes about to persecute the woman which brought forth the man-child. The man-child is Messiah. The woman that brought him forth is Israel. So we find that in these last days, when Antichrist goes about to destroy Israel, it will be uh, directly compelled by this one who is the dragon, who is also called that old serpent, who we connect to Lucifer, that fallen angel, who is the devil, Satan. And we believe that Satan has always been about the process. Remember when I talked about the conflict of kingdoms. He has always been about the process of destroying God's people, thus destroying God's promises, thus proving that God is not God, because if God's promises fail, then God is not God. Then Satan can claim that throne for himself, which is what he's wanted to do from the beginning. The destruction of the Jews thus has always been the calling card for the devil. Always. Now, that doesn't mean you have any obligation to blindly support a bunch of unbelieving politicians and their unbelieving policies. But those two things are different in kind. So to summarize my thoughts here, and I've, I've kept you a long time. Thank you for your patience. The nation of Israel, number one, bears the marks of God's prophetic workings. Why do I believe that the people over there are the people that, that, that God is working through? Because something miraculous happened in 1948. Something that I, as I've said, I put on par with any miracle that, that the Bible talks about. With perhaps the notable exception of raising from the dead, but even then, raising a nation from the dead. That's a miraculous thing, and that gives us a measure of confidence that what's happening over there is happening according to God's prophetic design. Now, if that does not happen, we walk away and say we were wrong. It must not be that group. It's going to be another group. Eventually, there will, be, there will be a group there, and that group will be God's group, and he will do the things that he's promised in the word of God to do. And because it's so miraculous that they reinvigorated in 1948, we would believe that that's the group. But we don't know yet, and that's okay. Number two, this current conflict has not evidently moved prophecy forward, other than just the steady stream of compelling Jews to find their way back to their homeland, drawing them back as the Bible says God will. And number three, support for God's people does not demand support for the politics or choices of national Israel today. And Christians need to, need, need to be willing to accept that. Uh, in the same way that we can have rosy-eyed glasses as it relates to our own nation, its intentions around the world and such, we can have rosy glasses as it relates to Israel's workings and intentions. And it's just not necessary for us to do that to be loyal to the Word of God. And then one final thought, and this brings us full circle. The children of Ishmael are still what God has prophesied they would be. The Arabs are still the people God promised they would be in the days that Hagar was, Ishmael was in Hagar's womb. A stubborn, a wild, an untamed, an aggressive people who will be against their neighbors and their neighbors against them. Don't expect that to change. 
As more and more, uh, we see what's happening in Europe, Europe is on fire because of unfettered immigration of all of these refugees, vast majority of them from the Syrian crisis of the last couple of decades. Say, well, they'll, they'll assimilate. They'll figure it out. They won't. They don't. It's not what they do. God promised they wouldn't. Again, will, can individuals assimilate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will the people lose their national distinctives? Will they join the Western ranks? Will they start to think the way we think and do things the way we do them? They won't. As we understand God's word. On the day that Sarai exercised that pragmatic faith and appealed to her husband to take Hagar, on the day that Abram yielded his headship and conceived with that Egyptian woman, little did anyone know the tremendous fallout that this would bring. Apart from Sarai's problems in her own day, Ishmael isn't really a huge problem for Israel throughout their years. Edom and Moab and, and, and such, Ammon, become significantly greater problems than, than, than Ishmael's children in, in the days of the Bible. But all throughout history, those Arab nations that simply existed, existed until Satan drew them together in the 600s under the banner of Islam. And that was the doing of the wicked one. Then they became primed to become the great enemy of God and the great enemy of Israel, making Islam the great tool of Satan that we all know that it is and we all know that it will continue to be. It took thus some 2,000 years for the error of Abram's day to manifest itself in the scourge of Islam upon the world in the way that we've seen it. 1,000 years, if we want to credit going back to those, those conquests. And in this, we are reminded that faithless choices can have effects well beyond just our day. And in that, may God help us to be faithful as well. We talked this morning in our Sunday school hour about the sowing and reaping principle, about choices and consequences. The idea of the sowing and reaping principle is, number one, you always reap what you sow. You're never going to plant uh, corn into the ground and get watermelons out. It's just never going to work. It's not, not going to happen. You're not going to plant evil and get righteousness out of it. can't happen. You're not going to plant righteousness and get evil out of it. That doesn't happen either. What you plant is what's going to grow. You reap what you sow. Second, you always reap more than what you sow. When that seed bears fruit, it bears more than itself in fruit. And third and finally, and this is the operative one for today, you always reap later than what you sow. See, things have to grow. And Abram made a mistake, and Hagar made a mistake, and on that day that mistake bore a little bit of fruit, but it took a long time for that mistake to fully come to fruition, and now it's an integral part of the geopolitical problems of our world. Now, that's not a threat or a warning that any, any individual choice you're going to make is going to end up causing the world to be turned upside down. But you know what? You just never know. You just never know, for good or for ill. You just never know, which is why we determine that our decisions will be ones that can bear good fruit in our lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our children's children. That if our decisions are going to bear some fruit, may we determine that they will bear fruit for good and not for evil. May they echo into the future unto God's glory and not unto sorrow or unto loss. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.